So open your Bible, if you would, to uh, Matthew chapter 17. Uh, in the scripture reading, we read the, the last half chapter before that, chapter 16, and that's going to have bearing on chapter 17 um, in the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, this is the account of the transfiguration of Christ, which is also repeated in Mark and also repeated in Luke. But we're going to look at the Matthew account, and we'll make reference to a few ideas from the parallel account. So, Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read verse 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. The transfiguration of our Lord is one of seven pivotal events in the ministry of our Lord. Theologians have isolated seven particular events that seem to uh, uh, encapsulate the ministry of our Lord. And those seven events are, of course, the incarnation, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, and then the transfiguration, and then, of course, his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. For each of these, these seven events, we, we have these dramatic events fulfilled by our Lord, um, but also had been prophesied of, of earlier Uh, Also, having very profound and tremendous uh, statements that accompany them, uh, uh, consequences that have eternal eternal effects on them. And and the transfiguration of our Lord is is one of such events. And and we're going to look at shortly the events that were coming up to this, uh, as there are in all seven. There is this foundation, this, this bedrock that is, is set for the event. And then the event illuminates in reality some tremendous spiritual truths. And then typically our Lord or the scriptures shed light back on it. So I have five segments of my message this morning I'd like to share with you. And, and I trust the Lord will warm our hearts with his presence by his word. First of all. Startling words at Caesarea Philippi. Startling words at Caesarea Philippi. 
in the run-up to the cross, which is going to occur shortly after Matthew 17, in the run-up to the Mount of Transfiguration event, there is an increasing um, conciseness of our Lord's words. There is, there is more emotion. The gospel is now starting to be opened up for what it really is. And what our Lord is going to tell the disciples, which we read in chapter 16, there are some very piercing truths, some startling words. Um, he's going to present to the disciples this eternal reality of the gospel that they had never heard from the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he's going to set their thinking on, on their head. Um, think about the disciples, the apostles at this point. They were still struggling with some of the most elementary truths. They knew that the Messiah would be the king, but they couldn't understand how he could be the king of kings, not just king over, over Israel, but king over the entire world. They did not understand how he could be David's son, and yet David's Lord, you recall, the Lord put that question to others, and in the background, they're scratching their head too, not knowing how that would work out. Um, our Lord had directed them to the fact that the Messiah would be a servant. Think about Isaiah 42, where it says he's going to be a servant. That's going to be who he is. Think about Isaiah 53, where we're talking about the shedding of blood, this, this efficacious blood sacrifice by the Messiah, which would provide expiation for sin. All of these things, I think, are rumbling around in their head, things they've never heard before. And now on the road from Caesarea Philippi, in a very short, condensed compass, Jesus opens it all up to them. Think about some of these startling words. The first one is he asked the question, whom do men say that I am? That's not the question, is it? Because he wants to ask them, who do you say that I am? But he opens it up by saying, who do others say that I am? And of course, that's a great theological discussion that we have. Is, is he Elijah? Uh, is the son of man Jeremiah, one of the prophets? And then Jesus gets down into their heart. But who do you say that I am? And then I, I imagine this group standing around our Lord and some awkward silence. And then, of course, Peter breaks through and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't know if Peter understood what he was saying as far as the impact and the reality of that. But he confessed that this man, Jesus Christ, was in fact God in their midst, God amongst them. And then, of course, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, you know, they are locking themselves away in a monastery, as it were, hammering the word of God and coming up with some theological truths. And here, the reality is a tax collector, a fisherman, a the likes of us, God can open the windows of heaven, as it were, and give us spiritual truth. But then to top that off, after he's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus then says, but don't tell anybody. See that thou tell no man that he was Jesus Christ. And he's going to repeat that in, in, in Matthew 17. But here in 16, he says, don't tell anybody. And you would think that they would tell. They would want to tell. This is who we've been waiting for. 
It goes on further with startling words. He says, the Son of Man is going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, elders, and scribes. And he'll be killed and raised again the third day. This is really startling, I think especially for Peter. Peter's conception of the kingdom, this does not fit. And so what does he do? He rebukes the Lord. Which you would think that that the first thing Peter would think, wait a minute, I just said this is God, and now I'm going to rebuke him. Peter's thinking is so fragmented, so so unhinged. And of course, the Lord has to tell him, get get thee behind me, Satan. You are not savoring the things that be of the kingdom of God, but the things that be of men. It goes on, then Jesus says, what is the cost to be a disciple? He says, you have to, verse 24, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. And then he emphasizes it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. But on the contrary, of course, they will lose it if they try to keep their life. Jesus is saying you have to lose that that carnal identity, that selfishness, that living for yourself, that all those things opposite of what Jesus says we must do. And then he, he goes on to emphasize it again. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And he seems to be saying, if you had the whole world to give for your soul, if a price could be paid, we know no price can be paid for it, but but it's as though if you could pay that, that would be an exchange rate for one soul. And he's showing what is, is the value of an eternal soul. That's striking. He's telling these 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 fishermen and tax collectors and that they have to live for him. They have to give it all. And then he goes on to say, if you're ashamed of me, and here he's talking about the cross. Remember the cross is called a scandal. If you're ashamed of the scandal of the cross, then I will be ashamed of you at my coming. So he's given this mini panorama of judgment day, as it were. As, as our Lord is this run up to the cross, this run up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he, he is compressing with this intensity. He's compressing as he's barraging the disciples with all of this covenant truth, this redemptive truth, who he is. And I could just imagine the disciples are trying to grasp little pieces here and there and, and fill out their mind of what's happening. And all of these statements, and one week later, Our Lord is going to pull back the veil of his humanity as it were. And the disciples are going to see this revelation of the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I think at that point, they they will realize that he has the right to say what he said. And what he said, those words, their spirit and their life and their truth. I think this, this Mount of Transfiguration, which is going to, we're going to look at next, it's partially to confirm Peter and James and John in their faith. It's partially going to substantiate that he's the Son of God, uh, partially glorify his, his Father, partially going to be the crowning revelation of what Moses and Elijah spoke about and many other reasons. But as the stage is set in Matthew chapter 16, these startling words... It's going to be a foundation. It's going to be a framework now for what's going to happen this one week later. Secondly, 
The scripture says he was transfigured before them. Seven on the mount altogether. And there's going to be this profound change. Now when we think about how profound the Mount of Transfiguration is, let me ask you a question. Of all the events that happened in our Lord's ministry up to the cross, are there any of those acts that are repeated elsewhere in the epistles or elsewhere in the book of Acts? For for example, the, the miracle of the wedding at Cana. Is that talked about in the book of Acts or the epistles? Uh, a blind Bartimaeus receiving sight, uh, the feeding of the thousands, the, the calming the storm on the sea. Are any of those, or other parables he told, or teachings, or miracles, are any of those repeated elsewhere in the scripture? Any events up into the cross? And the answer is no. None of them are repeated, except the Mount of Transfiguration is repeated elsewhere in the scriptures. Peter says, For he, that is Jesus, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice. I like that phrase. Such a voice to him from the excellent glory which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Peter says in one of his epistles, he talks about the Mount of Transfiguration event. And he says, we heard his voice. We saw his glory. We were with him in the Holy Mount. Peter never forgot that encounter. And this is the only event in our Lord's ministry up to the cross that is repeated elsewhere in the scripture. And later on, we're going to look at an application of that truth to us. But this, this event from Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, is tremendously profound. You remember I said there were seven events, high water marks in our Lord's ministry. And I think of it in terms of the first three, his incarnation, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, focus on the man Christ Jesus. And then as a bridge, we have the transfiguration, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then we have those three, his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, focusing on the fact that he's a Messiah. But this, this, this event is so profound. Think about it. For a short interval of time, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, and the veil, as it were, of his, of his humanity is, is pulled aside so that to some impressive degree, his divinity is perceived to the point where it can only be that this is God himself. He's changed, not in substance, but in appearance. And there is this, this effulgence of the Shekinah kind of glory of God that was displayed on the mount. What Jesus was doing in an unparalleled way at that moment when he pulled aside the veil of his flesh so his divinity could emanate 
What he was doing in an unparalleled way was giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. What he was doing in an unparalleled way was showing that he was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. What he was doing in an unparalleled way, though he told Moses who wanted to see the glory of God, remember that from the Old Testament? And, and God, Jehovah God, told Moses, you cannot see me, you cannot see my face and live. And yet in an unparalleled way, Jesus is showing these disciples on the mount that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Or as the psalmist said, he covered himself with light as with a garment. This God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he said on, back at Caesarea Philippi, that absolutely has to be the way. That has to be doctrinal truth. That has to be the way that we, if we want to be a disciple of his, we have to have, have our life be in, in that bucket. It's, it's tremendously profound. You know, every, every account of our Lord, of course, is profound and tremendous. And think of any adjective you want to put on that. But for God to be here, I mean, if this little room was the mount and Jesus was here, and all of a sudden we saw him as God, that is, that glory that shone as bright as the sun, uh, I don't know what we would say. We'd be speechless, except unless we were Peter, who has to quickly come in. We'll look at him shortly. It's profound, tremendous. And the idea of this transfiguration, the word is metamorphosis. Again, changed in appearance, not changed in substance. He was always fully God and fully man. And so there was this change, and the main idea was, was the glory of God with, with light, the primary attribute that was manifested to show who he was. We struggle to try to understand what that glory was like because we've never seen it. That kind of light, we've never perceived it. We only see a very narrow width or window in the whole spectrum of light. The parallel accounts and Matthew's account describe it as this. His face did shine as the sun and his raiment was as white as light. I never think of light as white. I think of light as bouncing off stuff so I can see trees and and the sky. But they have this, I think this divine, uh, as the Holy Spirit would describe it, light as, as white. Luke says his the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. Luke goes on to say it was, it was, it was glory. He says his raiment became shining, exceeding white as the snow, so as no fuller upon the earth can whiten them. This idea of light as really the, the catch-all description of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are other attributes of his glory, or there not. Eternal power, holiness. In his presence, we read accounts in the scripture where there is a deafening 
silence, and we read accounts where there is a deafening sound of worship. There's, there's so many other attributes that describe or can be connected with his glory, but here the idea is, is light, revelation, Shekinah glory. He was transfigured before them. He was changed. And then, of course, later he will be, that veil will be, will be drawn back. Thirdly, the witness of Moses and Elijah. In verse, th- in verse 3 it says, Behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Here fulfilling that divine precept, precept that in the mouth of two or three witnesses let everything be established. Moses, of course, representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets, reminding us that the sum and substance of the Old Testament, law and prophets, is summed up is Jesus Christ. It reveals Jesus Christ, his redemptive plan. It pointed to him. You're probably thinking of John 5.39, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, he told those individuals. But these are they which testify of me. Jesus Christ, I know as you're taught here on every page, whether in type, shadow, prophecy, his work, his kingship, his priesthood, his prophetic ministry, all of his attributes, all of his virtues. Moses and Elijah are going to appear with him in that glory. In my, in my sanctified imagination, I can see a heavenly scene and, and God the Father calls out, as he said to Isaiah, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Who can go back and testify on the Mount of Transfiguration with my dear son? And I can imagine in heaven there's this unanimous population of people who want to go back and testify of the suffering of Christ and the glory that will follow. And in my mind's eye, I can see Moses stepping forward and saying, send me, send me. Because when you wanted to send me the first time, I said no. When you wanted to have me lead the people in that exodus out of Egypt into the promised land, I shrunk back. I said, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice. They will say that the Lord has not sent me. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of tongue. I'm slow of speech. Remember in the desert, Jehovah God said, Moses, who made the mouth? Who made the tongue? I want you to go. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. And Moses Moses said, but I refused again. Pray by the hand of him else who you will send. And I can imagine Moses in in my sanctified imagination saying, send me because I don't care if I'm slow of tongue now. I don't care if they don't believe me. I don't care if I'm stammering. I want to be there with Christ to testify of him. Because after all, in hindsight, as I represent the law, I realize everything I wrote about, I was writing about him all along. The law, the manna, the tabernacle, the pillar cloud, the water from the rock, the march to the promised land. Everything I wrote in the law pointed in some way to the redemptive power and work and person 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, as, as the personification of the law, I understand that the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. Moses, that witness on the mount. As that call goes out, I can see in my mind's eye Elijah also wanting to be there with our Lord. Elijah, a rough, tough, and tumble character. Elijah, a prophet's prophet, who was always building altars, who was always worshiping, who was zealous for the Lord of hosts. And I can imagine him saying, when I was on the mount, God was with me. When I was on Mount Carmel, God was with me as fire came down from heaven. Now I want to be on the mount with him to be that voice that spoke of the prophetic ministry of God's eternal truth. Moses and Elijah, divinely appointed by the triune God to appear with our Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus did not need anybody else, did he? But he's making the point, again, Moses and Elijah typifying or pointing to the law and the prophets, reminding us that that everything in the scripture is summed up in him. As a matter of fact, when you read these accounts, you'll remember that Moses, Elijah, and our Lord, and though Moses and Elijah were there initially, they disappeared. And all they saw was Christ. All they saw was Jesus. Because in all things he could have the preeminence. The law and the prophets are nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. They disappear and they see the reality of of Christ. Fourthly, impulsive tabernacle building. Or I guess an attempt to, to build a tabernacle. What does Peter say? It's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, Peter is, Peter's got two out of three right. The first thing he says, it's good for us to be here. That's good. And then he says, Lord, if thou wilt, deferring to the Lord, that's good too. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, but we're going to make one for Elijah. We're going to make one for Jeremiah. Impulsive Peter. Impulsive. Now I say impulsive because, in fact, the account in Mark says that Peter said this because he didn't know what else to say. So, so Peter is one of these guys that always has to fill in awkward silences. Or, or maybe the Lord wants an awkward silence. Or he has to take the helm. Peter did not know what to say. I thought Peter always knew what to say because he's always talking. And the idea of, of tabernacles or booths typically carry two connotations in the scripture. Number one, worship. And number two, habitation in the sense of we're going to stay here for a little while. And the, the unfortunate part of what Peter said, first of all, of course, it, it suggests an equilibrium equilibrium between these three. Even though he's understanding this this radiant glory of God and he wants to build three. 
the unfortunate part of what he's saying is that it, it portrays the idea of man's works, man's efforts to please God, um, man's effort to possibly please Moses and Elijah too. Let's build a tabernacle for these guys because they're special. And Lord, we're going to include you in this as well. But, but let's back up the bus and take a different off-ramp and, and suggest that people are still building tabernacles today to other people, other things religious. People are building a tabernacle to the law. When they unbiblically put a, a binding of the law upon people's conscience and they say, you know, touch not, taste not, handle not. What did Jesus say to that? He said, he said, you're omitting the weightier parts of the law. You're picking and choosing. He says, what about the matters of law, judgment, excuse me, the weightier matters, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought not to have been, these ought you to have done and not to leave the others undone. People are building this tabernacle, as it were, to, 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 to the law, even though the scripture says the law is holy, just, and good, if it's used rightly. But they don't use it wisely. They use it to keep people in submission. They use it to, for a number of reasons. People are building tabernacles to the prophets. When there's a church that's several blocks from our house, and they used to have these banners on the church lawn, always uh, uh, advertising prophecy conferences and special prophecy speakers. And it, it happened so often, I wondered if they talked about anything else. The Bible says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In Revelation 19, right? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That, that, that is what prophecy is supposed to be about. But we too, brethren, have to be careful that we don't build tabernacles to confessions of faith, systems of worship, pet doctrines, secondary issues, special speakers. Remember, this is what happened in Corinth. Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of, I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. Some churches build tabernacles uh, to various things and we have to be careful that we don't want to build a tabernacle for the Lord Jesus but then also include some things that uh, should not be there if a tabernacle is to be built it's going to be built to the Lord Jesus Christ it'll probably be his church which is what he's interested in building fifthly and lastly startling words on the mount so remember there are seven people let me change that. There are seven on the mount. We have Peter, James, and John. We have Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And we have God the Father. These, these seven, and I'd like, to, I'd like to, to partition our thinking into the three conversations that are happening. There's a conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And then there's a conversation between Moses and Elijah. And then there's a conversation, well, I'm going to say it's, a, it's not really a conversation, but, but God the Father answering Peter. So I just want to partition those this way. First of all, 
this first conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. The parallel account says, speaking of these three, they spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now these are parallel words to what he said back at Caesarea Philippi. On the mount also now he's speaking about his decease. So very interesting word decease. It doesn't mean death. It means exodus. They're speaking about his exodus. His exodus from earth back to heaven. Back to that glory. And as you know, his exodus involves his death, his resurrection, his being laid in the tomb, his ascension, his journey. They're talking about the journey that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is going to be making. This is what they are speaking about. A very complex, tremendous, multifaceted journey that Jesus now was going to take from earth back to his Father. And every part of that, of course, is accompanied with glory. The cross had a glory with it, though though the light does not comprehend what he was doing. There was a glory in his resurrection as he broke the power of death. There was a glory in his ascension as he was taken up into glory. So they're talking about his exodus, the entire trip, Primarily his resurrection, excuse me, his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And they're talking about this as an accomplishment. As an accomplishment. When you die, you're not going to accomplish anything. When he died, he accomplished something that has eternal value I've, I've read books on preaching I don't know if Chuck has read some of these books books on preaching that say don't ever ever tell your congregation about word studies because they're bored they don't care about the Greek they don't care about the Hebrew well let me tell you what the Greek says about the fact that he accomplished something and think about it in terms of his exodus his crucifixion his resurrection his ascension this word is translated Elsewhere in the New Testament, to make full and fill up, to cause to abound liberally, to, for something to be complete and finished, to fill up so that nothing shall be wanting in measure, to fill to the brim, to consummate, to make something perfect, to carry through to the end, including every detail. This describes the exodus of our Lord, his journey back from this earth back to heaven. And Moses and Elijah and Jesus, the law and the prophets, spoke about his exodus that he would take the entire journey, that entire path. The second conversation or the second group of, of words are Moses and Elijah. What are they saying? I think what they are saying involves the completeness 
of their witness. I'm going to ask you to think about something. Of course, Moses and Elijah here are talking about the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That death part of his exodus. But what about the other two parts, his resurrection and his ascension? What do Moses and Elijah have to say about that? Well, think about this. At the time of the resurrection, when those disciples ran to the tomb, the scripture says this. They entered in and they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. I'm suggesting that these two men were Moses and Elijah. They said, why are you seeking the dead among the living? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? I'm suggesting these two men were Moses and Elijah. What about at his ascension? In the book of Acts, when he was taken up into heaven, the disciples are looking steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, and the scripture says, and behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. I'm suggesting that these two men also were Moses and Elijah. I may not be able to be totally dogmatic upon this, but as they're speaking about the exodus of Christ from this earthly scene, that entire path that he has to tread, I think they too have something to say about his resurrection and his ascension back into glory. Two witnesses where this thing is confirmed. That, that third speaking arrangement was God the Father and, of course, Peter. Of course, Peter has already said what he said, and we can move on to something else where God the Father said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. The same words we heard the Father say at our Lord's baptism. God the Father, in essence, saying, God who's spoken of a variety of ways in the past times has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Jesus, the living word, he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the word. So take everything now that, that, that you've, you've learned and, and run it through the filter of the Lord Jesus Christ. See it from the vantage point of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am speaking by him. Hear what he said. Understand how he lived. Look at those miracles and teachings that he performed. This is not the dead letter of the Pharisees. This is not the legalism of the scribes. This, these words are spirit and they are life. And God puts, as it were, his, his stamp of authenticity upon who Christ he was the Son of Man. As his humanity veil is briefly drawn away and they can see him for who he is. Well, let me close with a couple of brief applications. I mean, this we could spend a lot of time on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's just, it's just so tremendous that, that God condescends to men. Of everything that he did in his earthly ministry, you would think he would not have to substantiate that he was in fact God in the flesh. But this undeniable truth 
of them seeing the glory of God is it's just remarkable. Well, two quick applications. Number one, take heed to God's word. Take heed to God's word. Do you remember I said that this event is the only one that is repeated elsewhere in the epistles? Peter said, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. He goes on to say, let me repeat those verses. He, that is Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He goes on to say, this voice which came from heaven, we heard it when we were with him in the holy mount. And then he says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. He's talking about the scriptures. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. He's saying we have a very similar situation where we have the word of God. He says, bring it near, give attendance to it. How much would you give to have been on the Mount of Transfiguration to see the glory of our Lord? Next question. How much would you give to have this book? There is, in one way or another, there is an equating of the Mount of Transfiguration experience to to this living word of God. It's interesting to me that Peter ties those two together. Taking heed to this word, these scriptures, and the Mount of Transfiguration. They took heed to the Mount of Transfiguration experience. He's telling us to take heed to this word. Second, by way of application, we think about the Mount of Transfiguration. We are, I think we should be humbled to think that God is working in us to transfigure us as our brother prayed into the image of his dear son. It says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We see his glory here. We too are changed. Metamorphosis, same word. We are changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's an incremental change as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. It's an incremental change, but it's an incremental transfiguration, metamorphosis. And one day, it will be an instantaneous change. One day, when he comes in glory, we will be with him in that same glory. And we will have been so changed that none of us are going to say, hey, let's, build, let's start building a bunch of tabernacles. We're going to realize it's all about him. We will appear with him on that mount in glory forever and ever. What, what a tremendous truth the scriptures are opening up for us. 
as it relates to this Mount of Transfiguration account. Well, may God be pleased to use these words to draw us ever closer to the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who so patiently, so lovingly, with great determination, uh, sought to teach the disciples, and, and even today is teaching us through his word. Father, we want to know thy glory. We thank you that one day we will see that as much as you will per- permit us to see, as much as we as, as creatures will be able to apprehend, yet you've promised uh, that will happen, and we bless you and thank you for that. In the meantime, Please, we ask, we we humbly ask that you would transform us, uh, that we could be like our Savior more, uh, every day making progress as you would change us. Um, Help us, Father, to do that very thing, that we might glorify thee. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.